Hello folks, this is Ryan Cook, your host, welcoming you to another episode of Civic Tech Chat. This one marks 70 episodes over nearly four years. We're going to hit that anniversary here on the 18th, and in celebration of that, decided to go back into the archives and re-release one of our episodes that covers a topic that I think is salient to this day. We're going to venture back to October 21st of 2020, when we released an episode covering the Civic Technologist Practice Guide, a book written by Sid Harrell. I think what you'll find is that there's a really interesting conversation up ahead about many things that folks in the civic tech field are thinking about. So enough about that. Let's go ahead and hop right in. Hello, I'm Ryan Cook, and this is Civic Tech Chat, a podcast about the civic technology movement. We seek to harness the power technology has to improve the delivery of public services to people everywhere. Sid, thank you so much for joining us here on Civic Tech Chat. Could you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you do? Absolutely. I'm Sid Harrell, and uh, I'm an independent civic design consultant. Right now, my main gig is with the California court system, but I have worked at Code for America and at 18F and also with the Center for Civic Design, uh, basically helping different governments make better technology for their constituents, whoever those constituents might be. What would you say is your personal why? You know, that thing that drives you to get out of bed each morning and do what you do. Well, for one thing, it's interesting. And uh, I've never found technology for technology's sake as interesting as technology in the service of people. So for me, the idea that I could get up and use some of these cool skills that I gained over my first 10 or 15 years of career and actually potentially use them to make our society a bit better for people is incredibly motivating. Um, I think I really came to this right about when I was turning 40. And uh, that's a time when you kind of reassess. It's like, oh, you know, it's been fun improving laptop configurators and video games and, and all that kind of stuff like I did at my last cool user research job. But I wonder if there's something I can do that would, um, you know, without requiring me to retrain let me really contribute something. Is there any media, whether it's a podcast, something print, video, or some other such thing that you would recommend to folks out there in our audience? Um, tell me actually about your audience. Are they engineers, designers across disciplines? Yeah, we have a general smattering of folks across the practices. Um, also folks in like the program space as well. Oh, terrific. Um, it's a pretty, pretty representative group in civic tech. One of my favorite articles, um, in fact, I used to make every Code for America fellow read this, is called Spreading Slow Ideas, and it's by Atul Gawande from The New Yorker a few years back. It's available online. And it is about uh, the process of really making any significant change. And I love it because he compares a couple of medical innovations from the late 19th century. So one was anesthesia and one was asepsis. One of them was adopted almost immediately worldwide after it was pioneered. And the next one took 50, 60 years. And he looks at what the difference is between why one seems so compelling to adopt. And if you are working with a slow idea, like say governments should better meet their constituents with their technology, how you can make it easier for the adoption. And, and he ends up, uh, it won't be a spoiler because you should read it anyway, but kind of saying in some ways, a friendly person next to you encouraging you to do the right thing without judgment 
over time is the most powerful thing that we have. And so when I think about, you know, civic tech modes where um, tech people who have good skills go in and sit down and sit next to and learn from career folks and in institutions, you have a very powerful nexus there for bringing them forward. So that's probably one favorite article. Um, there are quite a few books listed. Um, I really recommend anyone in this area do some reading about accessibility and about anti-racism. They're both significant issues in government and at all levels. Um, so uh, a couple of favorites. Um, there's a really good book, and I'm gonna page through my book for a second to get the name right. It's by Regine Gilbert, Inclusive Design for a Digital World. That is fantastic. And um, there's also a set of stories uh, edited by Alice Wong that's called Disability Visibility that's really new. That's just first person narratives from people who have lived with various disabilities and how their encounters with the world go. And I think it's really, really instructive to think about that stuff. There are a bunch of cautions for civic tech too. And perhaps the most fun one for anyone, I think especially engineers is an essay called So You Want to Reform Democracy. It's by Josh Tauber from 2014 or 2015, uh, T-A-U-B-E-R-E-R. -E -E um, and if you look it up, uh, it's a great sort of mm, check on all of us. <laughs> and for folks that are wanting to uh, embark on this excellent reading list we've gotten, I'm gonna go ahead and gather those when I listen to this later and throw them in the episode description. So fret not as you're listening to this. Switching gears a little bit, I'd like to, uh, obviously like we wanna talk about, about your book, A uh, Civic Technologist's Practice Guide. I, I'd be curious to hear, what was your why for wanting to write a book like that? It's funny, um, it came about uh, during a coffee conversation with a friend, sort of pre-holidays last year. And I was sort of, you know, lamenting to my friend that I didn't know what my next uh, sort of leadership opportunity might be. And she told me, uh, this was Erica Hall of Mule Design, if you know her. She told me about something that she was working on and just starting to think about in terms of recontextualizing design education and trying to kind of come up with what grounding documents for the design field in the rest of the 21st century should look like. And I realized civic tech really needs grounding documents. Um, we don't have very many things that you can find and almost none that you can hold in your hand that say, hey, here's the basics. Or, you know, here's one perspective on how we practice and here's another perspective on how we practice and you as someone entering the field can take a look at them both and say, oh, I really kind of align with this one or I align with that one. Um, and I felt like given my history and seniority in the field, I was in a good position to pull some threads together and write something like that. And so I decided that it would be uh, short and I got home, I actually had written an outline in the taxi cab on the way home from this drinks meeting on GDocs mobile, <laughs> because that's what everybody uses, right? And when I, when I made it home, I told my husband, I was like, I figured it out. Uh, I figured out what book I wanna write and here it is. And he said, oh yeah, you should definitely write that. But you know what? You better get it done before the election in November. And I said, oh God. You're right, <laughs> because I think that um, if we get a new administration at the federal level, we're going to see a rush of people into civic technology. 
and there will be more need than ever for this kind of onboarding and grounding document. If we don't get a new administration, my guess is we're still going to see a smaller rush into state level and municipal level civic technology where people who want to serve their communities may or may not be comfortable working at the federal level or indeed may want to resist what's going on at the federal level might go into those pieces, those layers of government. That's a, that's a really good point about the election. I, uh, that, that wasn't really a front of my mind. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that, that's true. I suppose like depending on the results, we probably will see some amount of rush to, to one of those levels. That, that's really interesting. Yeah, and so I had a use case that, you know, someone who already knows the field a little bit could hand it to someone who reaches out to them, because I get a few of these every week and you probably get some too. It's like, oh, this civic tech thing you're doing sounds interesting. How do I get started? So I had two use cases, one for us practitioners to feel seen and maybe sort of get some common vocabulary around the things that we talk about and have a fairly strong perspective so that somebody could write another one from a different perspective and there could be that, okay, where do I align question for all of us, but also for it to be something that when that person reaches out, you can say, here, go read this and then we can talk after that. Hopping a bit into what, what, what you've written in the book, and, and I do have to comment that I, I rather enjoyed reading over it. It's, I found myself seeing some things from my own experiences and they're going like, oh yeah. One, one of those that uh, has actually come up some, a few times in this podcast is one of the things you mentioned in the second chapter, which is the idea that one of the compelling things about the practice of civic technology is having to embrace the constraint that you're seeking to serve everyone. Yep. Can you talk a bit about that for folks? Yeah, so I think it can be easy when you are prototyping something in a private sector context to say like, hey, we're, we're not going to worry about accessibility, we're not going to worry about languages, you know, we're just, or, you know, maybe even we're not going to worry about um, people who don't have access to a desktop computer. Um, but there's an interesting thing with civic stuff where we don't really have an alternative to go to a different government that's in competition that might offer better service. So if I want a business permit for a business in San Francisco, I have to get it from the state of California and the city of San Francisco. I can't just go up the road and get one, you know, from somebody who has a better package. And I guess that's technically not always true. You can incorporate your corporation in Delaware to save on taxes. And there's a few hacks like that, but you know, if I need to sign up for a summer parks program for my kid, I gotta do it in this town. <laughs> Um, and that just kind of gives you a little picture of the breadth of government services that we're talking about too. But so when something is a monopoly, you start to have an obligation to serve everyone. And this is also a democracy. And that means that we are all little owners of a piece of this. So really everybody that is your user is one of your owners. And it's a little switch to think about, you know, would it be okay for one of the owners not to be able to use my product when I built it? Not really. So there's just sort of no justification and a strong imperative <laughs> you know, on, on both sides, right? There, there, there's no reasonable excuse for saying, um, you know, we're not gonna worry about Spanish speakers. There are not a lot of states where that makes any sense anymore. And then you know, you have realities like about 15 to 20% of Americans have a primary internet access through their mobile device. And so that means if you put out something that isn't mobile capable, you're excluding a significant chunk of your user base. And it's more than likely to be people who could most benefit from government service. So it really doesn't make sense. So here you are, 
in this situation where it's pretty clear that building for everyone is going to be a mandate. And so really taking the sort of agile, you know, we start with a scooter and we get to a car or we start with a cupcake. Maybe that's a preferred analogy now, right? Like we, <laughs> we prototype our decorations on a cupcake and we move up to the multi-layer cake. Um, we want it to be a cupcake that includes those pieces. And then we can add on maybe some of the fancier features and so forth and it kind of forces you to be more of an agile practitioner. If, you know, aside from the justice aspects, it's just interesting from a practice perspective. Something you touched upon that resonated with me is the importance of shared language. You tell an anecdote about your time at Code for America where there wasn't a shared understanding of what the word lightweight meant oh, yeah. in context. And I, I, ra I rather enjoy that story. Could you talk about that a bit and how folks might try to take a lesson from that and, effect and effectively communicate? Absolutely. So the story that Brian's talking about was uh, when we got hung up for two or three weeks working with city partners um, because we were really excited to propose a lightweight solution. And we meant lightweight in the sense of not requiring a lot of maintenance and not a lot of extra code and not overdeveloped. And they heard lightweight as in not robust, not ready for prime time and not serious. And neither of us questioned that very basic term. And so we were stuck on approval of our proposal and we could not get out of this loop for something like two weeks. Um, it's hilarious in hindsight, it was kind of <laughs> a nightmare at the time. We were really scared that we had somehow messed something up. Um, and one of the pieces I talk about in the book, I think is a section called your jargon and my jargon, where we all have a jargon, we all have a, a lingo or a slang that goes with the type of work that we want to do. And sometimes that's a really well-developed set of words that um, are important for describing concepts that are specific to a field. But so does everybody else. And being open to the reality that you're going to need to create a shared team vocabulary when you're working in a cross-disciplinary way and taking some steps to actually do that. So usually I often just create a team vocabulary sheet and set a norm that asking about words is always a good idea. And if you think you might be using one of those words, bracket it, you won't always know. Like with lightweight, we just missed it completely. Um, I've never missed that one again, but I've missed other ones. <laughs> um, I marched into the courts my first day and you know, when they asked me to introduce myself, I talked about all of my government tech experience and they said, why are you telling us about this? we're not the government. Why are you telling us about this? And I sort of had this, you know, taken aback, but all of your email addresses are .gov and we're in a government building and this is a third branch of government. And so no, we're not the government, we're the courts. What it turns out, which actually makes a lot of sense, is that various governments are often a party to a case before the court. So if a city is in a lawsuit or a state is in a lawsuit, it's sort of the government and they while the courts are a branch of government, they wanna make it really clear that they're not identified with executive branch agencies or legislative agencies that might be parties in a case. And so again, I ran into this, this what seemed like a strange misunderstanding of language, you know, like I had just lost track of what that word meant, but I hadn't, I just needed to understand my partner's situation. That's, a, that's definitely a thing where it's like from the, from the outside, like, yeah, the courts are part of the, the government, but your, your, uh, your mention of like it being kind of a core part of their identity that they have to have that distance to be fair. Yeah. That's, right. Wow. Yeah. 
Fairness and impartiality, which by the way, has been fascinating to work with as design values during the time I've been at the court, because we think we want a really opinionated design value. Um, but that impartiality is a key value of the court and of court proceedings. And so how to design for impartiality has been this huge question that we've been dealing with for a couple of years. Another story that, that, that you told in the book that stuck out to me was one about a person named Angela, a person that you'd interacted with that, uh, in your words, was a person who knew everyone. You mentioned them in a section where I believe you were talking about the importance of folks that are like mid-tenured staff that are well-connected. Yes. Uh, what do those sort of relationships do for a project and how should folks strive to foster them? So Angela was someone that I met on a project in DC and she had a title like senior analyst or manager or something like that. And um, she was someone who'd been at our kickoff but hadn't said a lot. But we happened to see her heading out of the building to lunch and we said, oh, do you wanna, do you wanna come with us? We're going to get falafel. Um, and we went to this little cafe and we all bought our own lunch because you can't buy each other lunch in, in DC culture and sat there and just said, oh, you know, what's really going on here? And it, it turned out that Angela, like many people who have been at a government agency 10 or 15 years and are friendly and interested in pursuing interests uh, related to tech or related to anything else and curious, had a strong connection with people both up and down the hierarchy. So she was someone that frontline staff could tell about their issues. She was someone executives could check in with to see how things were actually going or to find out what the frontline staff's opinions were. They might not actually talk to the frontline staff, but they could talk to Angela. She was in their building. She was wearing a suit. You know, she, she felt comfortable. So to people all the way up and down the hierarchy. So after we had this lunch with Angela, we went back and sort of tried to email some more people. And late that afternoon, two people swung by our little workspace and said, oh, hey, Angela said we should talk to you. And then the following morning, four people showed up and said, oh, hi, Angela said we really should talk to you. <laughs> and suddenly, everyone that we needed to speak with wanted to make time for us um, because Angela had built this personal reputation that she was a terrific partner and colleague. And so given that she was knowledgeable and smart and well-liked, if she said, oh, those weirdos from 18F in the little office, they're great, you should talk to them, everything became easier. There's, a, there's also a section where you talk about how folks can contribute. And one of the ideas in that section that stuck out to me is that you mentioned that while the work is not necessarily partisan, it is certainly political. Uh, what does that mean for you and I guess potentially for other folks in the space? Yeah, I think it's really important. If you are trying to use technology to shift the way that organizations, institutions that are centuries old relate to their constituents, that is an act of politics inherently. You know, if you are trying to say that uh, your DMV should be more responsive and should benefit different people, that's absolutely an act of politics. Um, my personal politics lean towards access and justice, and so we should make our institutions serve more people and make more people feel like they are really close members with stakes in our institutions. But that is, in fact, a political position. You know, there are coherent positions, although I don't like them, that would say something else. And so pretending that it isn't a political position doesn't actually help that much. And one of the reasons it doesn't help is because I can't necessarily achieve all of that through technology. 
So if the policies of the agency or entity that I'm working with are diametrically opposed to the thing I want to achieve, I can't go fix it with technology. You know, if, if um, people have run into some trouble recently with unemployment insurance applications during the pandemic, many of them were designed uh, by states that wanted to sort of use fraud prevention as a proxy for having less people get unemployment benefits, which is a political position that is popular in some places. And so you can't kind of go and fix those systems with a technical tweak to make them more accessible, more welcoming. Um, if the policy, you know, if you have a really nice web front end and then on the back end, this application that you've submitted is gonna get a really hard review that you haven't helped that much. And often if you kind of improve the surface of something in technology, if it happens to have any historical biases embedded in it, you can just reinforce the biases by making a nicer design, a faster performance and things like that. So, and these are all fairly political questions about access and equity and so forth. And so the reason I said that, that it's nonpartisan, it doesn't have to be partisan, I mean, it can, um, but it's always political, is I think that it helps us to be conscious about it and to think about our own you know, political desires. As someone who's recently been spending a lot of cycles trying to level up policy skills, I was pretty happy to see a section of the book that was really, really focused on that as an important thing. Could you talk a bit about your view on how policy as a practice kind of fits in with the rest of the space? Yeah, it's incredibly important and it's an entire academic field in itself, right? Like you can get a master's or a PhD in policy. Um, and like many technologists, I don't know a lot about it. And it was really the one area that I did some more research on for the book that wasn't, you know, drawn from pretty close to my direct experience. So to put it broadly, policy is the ways and means that a government gets something done. And so it could include incentives, it could include disincentives, it could include um, objectives, like we would like to have more people taking advantage of the benefits that the government offers or taking advantage of services, or we would like to have less people taking advantage of services. We want more immigrants or we want less immigrants is a policy question. The one that I use as kind of a frame in my book because it's so quickly shifting in the United States is marijuana policy. As of the middle of the 90s, it was absolutely illegal everywhere. And it is still illegal throughout the United States per federal law. But states have made policy changes on their own over the last 25 years or so. So now we have this patchwork where um, in uh, most of the West Coast in Colorado, marijuana is not only legal for medical use, but legal for recreational use for adults. In very many states, uh, there are medical use provisions. Um, they require a more or less stringent evaluation process. And uh, one of the things that's happening in the states that have fully legalized is that civic technologists are trying to do the data work to expunge people's past marijuana convictions because it's seen as not fair that people should have this stuff on their record for something that is now in fact legal. But one of the points I make is you can only do that if you're in a state that has legalized. Like I can't, it doesn't make any sense to do the data work about expunging convictions if I am in a state where they still have um, an illegalization policy. And in general, 
understanding the sort of long-term policies and the policies of particular administrations will really help you figure out who you align with. Um, and there's, uh, I think, some interesting questions always to be asked about, you know, what can you get done if you go to work with an administration that you don't align with? I worked uh, with the Trump, you know, under the Trump administration, although I was a, a career, uh, I was not a career, I was a, a term federal employee, but I was not an appointed person who was part of the administration um, during the Trump administration. So my personal politics don't align with the Trump administration, but there's a lot of work in the administration of government that's done by career public servants that actually felt pretty aligned to me to work on. But just knowing what the policy priorities are can really help you see what's going to be a good opportunity, what might be easy to move forward, what might be hard to move forward, what you might need to wait for another election to move forward. That actually makes me think there's a, there's, there, I think, believe there's a section in your book that you kind of specifically talk a bit about timing with, with administrations <laughs> where it's like when you're trying to decide like what to do as far as like how things align with an administration's priorities, whether yeah. it's like close to an election, do you think yeah. they're going to win? Uh, it, it sounds like maybe that relates to a little bit of what you're talking about. So I think I talk about that in the section on seeking alliances and how you might think that the highest level executive that you could get some pull with might be the best person. But in fact, if that person is an elected leader or close to elected leadership and there's an election coming up and it's an election that they are not certain to win, if you are closely aligned with them, whatever you did might get swept out by an incoming administration just because um, they're going to have different policy priorities. That's why there was a competitive election. And sometimes they may just sweep out work that aligned with the policy priorities of the last administration. Um, I do think one other important point about policy is that tech really shines in policy implementation. So meaning um, going back to unemployment insurance or maybe the healthcare.gov failure, which you might remember from 2013, that we had this new healthcare policy that had been passed at you know, great trouble and lots and lots of work had gone into it. But when a website failed to work, that policy almost went down the toilet because at the implementation level, could Americans actually sign up for insurance plans that were promised as part of that law? And so there's an enormous opportunity for tech people at all of that um, sort of frontline implementation of a policy that has been decided. A lot of it can happen through technology in the 2020s. And I think it was like the, uh, the seventh chapter. You talk a bit about what the field looks like for folks that are entering at different stages of their careers. And one of the things you brought up that I think is really important because it's something that I actually see at my own day job as a conversation that happens over and over and over again is this question of, do we have the infrastructure to mentor someone that's coming in junior and like make sure they're actually getting something out of it for the experience. Could you talk a bit about like what makes for good infrastructure for doing that sort of thing? I think the biggest thing that makes for good infrastructure is seniors with time. That can be really tough in public sector environments uh, right now. They tend to be understaffed and underfunded. And so if you have seniors who need to be heads down a really significant portion of their time, you can get a, uh, an environment where juniors just kind of get little tasks to do and don't get to see uh, you know, more advanced practice and sometimes don't, in a hierarchical environment, may not 
senior may not want to expend the political will to bring another person along to a meeting. And, you know, it's just sort of like, oh, I didn't learn that much. So I think I even say in the book, you know, if you're just starting out, you may want to contemplate going to a regular private sector tech company and doing some kind of other work in the local civic sphere where you are to start understanding that. Because for one thing, you probably would have a better salary, which is something that can compound over time. And for another thing, um, you'll probably get better tech instruction. Now, there are a few organizations that are really working on this. So uh, Code for America, for example, and NAVA Public Benefit Corporation both have these new apprenticeship programs that I think are probably really valuable. And these, where you find something like an intentionally designed apprenticeship program that's meant for a junior person within the civic sphere, that's probably a well-designed program that is going to help uh, help your practice and help your career. Another Another topic you spend some time on is the engineering design product triad. Like many of our listeners out there, I've spent a lot of time thinking and working on trying to work better with folks across practices. And in particular, like how we work to improve, like how we gather consensus for decisions and things like that. What would you say are some key things a team can do to like best empower that collaboration between the practices? So that's a great question. And I think what's interesting about it in particular in the government context is that that triad isn't very familiar within um, career government staffing groups. So you might instead have there um, someone with a title like a business systems analyst uh, who stands in maybe for a product person or a UX person a bit. Um, and the engineer would be called an application developer or something like that. Usually it's product that isn't present in design that might be hired out. There will often be some internal engineering capacity. Um, and so if you have a sort of digital services team that contains these three familiar disciplines and you already have to do the work, as you say, um, to collaborate across and to, um, and the, I think this is also difficult in government, to really set shared goals and a shared understanding of what the user is, who the user is, um, what the priorities are, and you know what needs to go first, you're also faced with then working in someone who doesn't see themselves as part of one of those disciplines that we're already doing a bunch of work to harmonize for lack of a better word. And I think we have often kind of leaned on things in our work with the courts like a really simplified scope document that asks really plain language questions like, what is it? Why are we making it? Who is it for? How will we know it's working? so that we kind of, you know, pull everybody out of their professional jargon, like we were talking about earlier, and create for all of us um, something that we can look at and say, yes, I'm signed on for that. And then we can start to do kind of collaborative practice. Okay, if we know that the most important thing um, right now is to give people access to form filling instructions on the web, um, and we want breadth of access, then we can all start to work together to say like, okay, well, here's, you know, here's what I do and here's how I can contribute to that. And do you want to go first? And I need this thing from you and all those kind of normal team conversations. Um, but it's the setting of the shared understanding amongst the team across those three disciplines and a few extra that really is the trick. And then I think those of us who are really familiar with agile practice and with mature technology organizations are inclined to give that space short shrift. 
because we don't think about how much work has been done, you know, at a company like Airbnb or, you know, even something newer to refine what the point is and how we would know that we were doing better than last year or how we would know that we were doing worse than last year. And, um, you know, in those cases, it's often refined all the way down to metrics, but in a lot of government organizations, we don't have sort of the qualitative answers that you would develop metrics from yet. And so figuring out, you know, one of the questions we recently posed to our leadership is, what role do you want digital services to play in accomplishing the mission of the judicial branch? And, you know, I think people know, but it hasn't been stated real explicitly. And that's kind of partly because of this program and IT divide in government or government, not government um, uh, environments where, uh, you know, talking about technology as a key part of the mission seems weird, but it's, it's helped actually to think about it in that frame of what role do you want it to play? Do you want it to, you know, to be a convenient way to direct people to our physical services? Do you want it to meet someone where they are, whatever device they're using? Do you want people to be able to really accomplish a whole court process with ever, without ever entering a building? That's a question then that executives mm -hmm. who are not tech people can answer and figure out. And then, you know, you can think about it, I imagine, based on that, even for the three little points that I named, you might make really different technology and design choices. But if everyone can understand the why and the how we'll know what's working, then uh, you can make them as a team. Related to the harmony within team conversation we're having, I, I also saw you mention this idea of that the, the fact that you might get asked to do planning that's a bit more step-by-step -step than what you might expect <laughs> yeah. in a like a typical like agile or, or lean shop. And you go on to say something I think is important that making the adjustments here is not about like losing some of your principles, but it's about trying to meet folks where they are. Uh, that's resonated with me because uh, we've been working with, with a team that's kind of struggling with some of like these same questions. In your view, how should folks approach this kind of situation? Um, I really think it's on us, the techies, the nerds, the ones who pride ourselves on adapting to new technologies and new situations all the time to make adjustments. And so that might mean that we make a shiny PowerPoint deck about every sprint. Or, you know, we just write some things down that we might not write down in the same way if we had a really well curated Slack in a really mature organization. Um, you know, maybe we'd have the GitHub pull requests running into the Slack and everybody would know how the whole set of systems work. And we may not have access to that. And we may have people who are really used to a more um, presentation and document based way of working. And I certainly find that with attorneys that I work with these days, like they are incredibly comfortable and facile working with documents fast. Other things are not as much a part of their core work set. And so like we just put stuff in documents. Um, and you can duplicate a lot of the things that, you know, that we think are important. But it is sort of, you know, if you just formalize it a bit, you know, turn something that you might do as a plain Google Doc into a Google Doc with really nice headers and then convert it to a Word document and send it out as a memo and you're done. <laughs> so one of the reasons I advocate doing this is that it's often not a whole lot of extra effort and it goes a long way toward making people feel comfortable with what you're doing. As you're right to point out in the book, the, the work is hard. 
and can often lead to burnout if one isn't careful. I believe you have a whole section of the book that's about this 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 thing. To that end, like, what, what sort of advice would you give to folks that are worried about or, or struggling with being burnt out? Um, so if you're already struggling with being burnt out, find a break. Um, you're going to need it. You don't want to get to the kind of burnout that your I don't want to go to work turns into I can't go to work. And that break can look like a lot of different things. I realize there's not much break for a lot of folks in a lot of situations during the pandemic. Um, but if there's something you can find, if it's, you know, two hours a week to close the door of your room and read or turn off or turn on uh, your, you know, your media stuff, whatever recharges you, um, find some time to do it. If you can take a week, that's great. If you can take a couple days, that's better than nothing. Um, if you're just thinking about looking out for burnout, one of the things that has really helped me at times, um, and I did get moderately burned out when I was chief of staff of 18F. It was a really tough period for the agency. And I think all of us on the leadership team struggled a bit um, just with, the, with the, the load and kind of the, the consequences that might be out there in terms of agent, you know, agency shutdown and stuff were scary. Um, so I kept a diary. Um, I kept a weekly diary and I also um, asked my husband every now and then to look at it. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, it's anyone you know who knows you well. Um, just having some other person who um, can kind of take a look at you and say, are you doing okay? Do I see a red flag in you? Or do I see a yellow flag in you? Like, do I think you maybe need a couple days off, you know, with a book and your dog or, <laughs> or whatever your restorative thing is? Um, and I think the other thing is none of us should do this alone. Um, so I am really excited to see more civic tech community and more spaces for us to get together um, because it, it's hard and it's hard in some ways that are particular to it. Um, and just having the ability to talk to somebody and say, oh yeah, I totally had that thing happen too where you know I busted my butt and my whole team's butt for six months to get something approved and then two months later, a new administration came in and shut down the whole thing and I'm crushed. Having somebody around who understands that and can say, hey, yeah, that, that just absolutely sucks. Y'all really should write up what you learned though in the process of making the proposal because that was a success and somebody could use that. Um, so we all need each other to do that. The uh, tradition we have on Civic Tech Chat is to make some space at the tail end of our conversation for concluding thoughts. So it'd be the, the thoughts that you'd like the listeners to kind of leave this program within their brains, as it were. So for you and this conversation that we had, uh, what, what is that? I hope to meet you one day, all of you listeners of Civic Tech Chat. Um, I hope to be part of your Civic Tech Posse. And I hope that you will come into this work um, or stay in this work with a really humble and open mindset. And I feel very sure that if you bring what is particularly you to it, you will make the field better. And uh, I like to think of the field as a 50 year project. Now, I don't suppose it will be all done in 50 years, but it's a bit of a counter to thinking of it as a five year project where we could just do a few technology projects and then things will be better. So you might say this round of civic tech started sometime around 2008 when people started doing hackathons. So by 2058 or 2060, 
we want to see public digital goods as good as the ones made by commercial entities and hopefully sooner, but it's a long project. And so I want to encourage you to, when you feel ready, jump in. When you feel tired, pass the baton. And whatever you do, write about it, talk about it. Reach out to me, tell me about it. Um, as hard as this work is, it's really fun and rewarding and I hope to see you around. Sid, again, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us on Civic Tech Chat for this conversation. I think folks will really get a lot out of what you had to say today. Thank you so much. It was absolutely my pleasure, Ryan. You can follow us on Twitter using the handle at Civic Tech Chat. Visit us on the web at civictech.chat or subscribe to us for content updates wherever it is you download your podcasts.